Hello. Thanks for tuning in to the American Experience Podcast. My name is Amber Delugash, and I teach a dual credit composition course in Bolivar, Missouri. Seniors in my comp class are wrestling with our coursework through the lens of an essential question during the fall semester. What does it mean to be an American? At one point, a student reflected that stories create connection and connection creates understanding. And this has kind of become a class mantra of sorts. And we decided that in order for us to walk away from this semester with a greater understanding of this question, we had to talk with Americans. We had to hear their stories. And we feel their experiences and insight are valuable. So we wanted to share them with you. Last season, we cast our net wide, pulling in voices from all over the country. This season, though, we decided to seek out voices that are rooted in our own local community. What stories do we have here? What can we learn from the various perspectives that originate from the same location? As you listen, keep in mind that each discussion is organic and unscripted. Students are gathering around the table, some figurative and some literal, to hear from our guests, and you'll receive the full school experience, complete with bells, announcements, and tardiness. So thanks for stepping into our world as we try to step into the worlds of others. Here's another episode of The American Experience. Our sixth guest of the semester was Dave Becker. Dave is the college and missions pastor at First Baptist Church of Bolivar. He and his wife, Laurel, were foster parents and adopted their second foster child, Owen. He shared the complexities of the foster care system and his thoughts on what it means to care for the community by investing in children. My name's Dave. Um, I'm married to my wife, Laurel. We're married nearly 15 years. We have four kids. Uh, Anzi's 12, Elias is 9, youngest uh, of the two five-year-olds, uh, Owen, uh, is adopted from foster care, and I've lived in Bolivar your entire lives, except for Slugash. <laughs> um, so been here 20 years, came to SBU in the fall of 1999, and essentially never left um, some short stints, but that was just like the spring field while I was working to get married. Um, I am the college pastor and missions pastor at First Baptist Bolivar. Uh, prior to that, uh, I was some kind of pastor, many different kinds of pastors at Freshwater uh, before we merged uh, with First last year. And I don't know, I don't feel like that's most of the pertinent uh, biographical stuff, and maybe we can pick up some other details along the way. Uh, so, as we're kind of thinking, and Ms. Dulash and I were texting uh, the last, I don't know, like week, this has been like just under a week, uh, prep. Um, and so just thinking through some ideas. So I, I came up with kind of three different categories we might be able to think through. Uh, one is, is both as a college pastor and a missions pastor, um, it's given me the opportunity to travel quite a bit. Uh, so we can maybe think in terms of world traveler, if you will, which sounds a lot more exciting and exotic than it probably actually is. Um, so we think about the question through that lens. Uh, we can think it through um, kind of the experience of um, the foster care system and adoption and, and some of those uh, kind of things, or just generally as like a, a church leader, church planter, um, faith leader uh, type category. I don't know if any one of those three kind of interests you more than 
than any of the others, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Where did you foster this? Huh? Where did you get your foster kid? Where did they come from? Walmart. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> uh, so our license uh, was uh, sponsored through the Missouri Baptist Children's Home. And so in the foster care system, you have to be licensed uh, to receive a foster placement. Uh, you can be licensed directly by the state. Um, all licenses come from the state, but the state also subcontracts out uh, to other orphan care agencies like the Missouri Baptist Children's Home or um, uh, I was a Great Circle, I think is one of them. Uh, there's several different agencies that will essentially subcontract that out. So uh, we went through the MBCH. Uh, our, uh, our license is inactive right now. It's inactive. Um, but in the time that our license was active, we had two, we had two different foster placements. Uh, so we had a foster daughter. Uh, and she was actually from southeast Missouri. Uh, but her case came through Greene County. And then she was placed with us uh, here in Polk County. And the reason, and there are some kind of a logistical, legal reasons uh, for that. So normally, kind of, the system tries to keep everything within the same county, right? So a child comes into care, uh, the system, let's say here in Polk County, then normally it's, it's the children's division in Polk County that receives that child into care, and then they try to place them in Polk County, right? So they try to keep everything as, as close to normal. And even that is just a crazy, I mean, this is not normal. I think that's one of the things when you engage in the, in the foster care system um, that you kind of learn right away. Like, nothing about this is normal. Um, and, and if we think it in terms of, like, worldview, right, then you become immediately aware that there's stuff in the world that's not supposed to be this way. Right? That things are, there are things that are broken in the world. Right? So when you have a foster kid, like, you have this, like, living embodiment right, of this huge existential idea that there's a lot of broken stuff in the world it's in your house. <laughs> right? um, so yeah, our, our, our foster guard uh, came um, through all that like roundabout way because she came into care uh, after sustaining some pretty significant injuries, um, which is not abnormal system but the problem was is that her grandmother uh, was a uh, children's division supervisor right in her county so the fact that that all this was happening to her under the watch care of her of her grandmother who works for the system necessitated that her case be moved out of that county because of conflict of interest uh, to Green County She got placed with us. Okay. Uh, our our foster son, who's now our adopted son, uh, is from this area. Uh, so he was born at CMH. Um, came into care from the hospital. He's uh, in uh, narcotics uh, in his system, not promoting <laughs> drugs. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, came into care when uh, and was placed on what's called a kinship placement which is not the same, it's, 
it's like being placed with a foster family, uh, but the, some of the requirements are a little bit different. So, uh, so when a child comes into care through Children's Division, they try to place them first with a family or a close family friend, again, trying to stabilize that child's situation as much as possible and normalize it as much as possible. So if they have a family member who will take them on a kinship placement, they can do that right away. Uh, and then that kinship placement has to go through you know, some approval processes, you know, some background checks and that sort of stuff. Uh, whereas like a, a foster parent like, like me has to, uh, and my wife have to go through tons of training. It's, I don't know, it's uh, 30 plus hours, I can't remember. It was so long ago, you go for like 10 weeks. I think it's like 30 hours of initial training. Then you have a home study, uh, which is uh, an incredibly invasive process. Uh, so essentially you get a packet, it's a questionnaire, um, that dismantles every part of your life, right? So tell me about your childhood, tell me about your parents, tell me about how you were raised, if you were placed in these kinds of parenting positions, like how would you respond, is your home safe, like, criminal background check, financial background check, um, all sorts of stuff like that. But a kinship placement kind of gets to initially skip over some of that so the kid can go into their home right away. Uh, and then they kind of start working through that process on site. Uh, so our son was placed in a kinship placement with his grandma. Uh, and he was there for just under three months. Uh, we got him the day before he turned three months old. Um, and the situation there was was being careful. So when we got him, uh, so the first thing, so it, how it works, and again, it's, it's kind of weird, uh, and at the same time, it's it's one of the interesting things that I don't think people know a lot of, about foster care. So like what happens is you get approved and your name goes in a database and essentially it's kind of a rotating list, you know, so when a, when a child comes into the care of the system and the children's division worker pulls up the list. I don't know exactly how the mechanics of it work, but whoever's name is at the top of the list, they call that person and say, hey, we got this kid and here's the situation and here's how old they are and do they have siblings and da 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 just kind of go through the factual rundown and then you you can say, yes, we'll take that placement or no, we won't. <coughs> and you're, uh, you don't have to state a reason for that, we've turned out placements before, um, you know, because we have, as a family, kind of an internal paradigm, right? A decision-making grid that helps us decide um, what kind of placement we would take. Right? Uh, ours is pretty uh, is not a very uh, intense. <laughs> it's not a very rigorous paradigm in that we we don't have a lot of requirements. Uh, it's really just kind of two. Uh, so the first is we all, we've always felt that we wanted to keep our birth order intact, meaning that we would we would not take a foster placement that would make our oldest child, Ansley, from twelve year old, uh, not the oldest child. Um, and then the second is is we would take a documented picky eater, uh, and that's because. Uh, my wife is extremely committed, and our family, but she's the, the leader of this part of our family, uh, extremely committed to us eating real food. Right? So we eat real food, local food, 
not necessarily kid kid approved <laughs> food. Like you know, we don't have uh, I don't have chicken nuggets or or uh, bagel bites in our freezer or you know, boxes of mac and cheese in our pantry or you know, stuff like that. And, um, I don't I'm not running down those foods. Just saying we just don't eat them. Uh, we have one of our college students said. Uh, how do you get your children to eat off-brand food? Uh, and I had to tell her, I said, this is going to sound really snobby, but we don't mean it in a really snobby way. It's just, we're just reporting the facts. But like 90% of our food doesn't have a brand name. Right? Because, or a name at all, because beef is beef. Uh, and we get our beef from a local farmer. Uh, we get our pork from a local farmer. The vegetables don't have necessarily have brands, especially when you buy them at the farmer's market. Um, so no, no picky eaters, because uh, that's just, it's a war we're not going to fight three times a day, every day, for an undisclosed, uh, open-ended amount of time. Um, but anyway, so when we, when we got him in a place with us, you know, what happens is, so you need to say yes or no, and then when the child is placed with you physically, like they, they bring the child to your home, or you go to children's division and pick them up, or you know, whatever the arrangement is. Within 24 hours, they have to see a doctor, right? Not physical. Uh, and then, depending on the age and uh, situation of, of, the, of the child, then uh, they would also maybe go to, like here at Baldwin, to the Polk County Health Department and have a WIC, uh, W I C, a WIC appointment. That stands for Women, Infants, and Children. Right? It's a, state-funded program that provides food, uh, formula, things like that uh, to uh, families that qualify. Uh, and a foster kid automatically qualifies. Doesn't matter, I mean, they could be they could be placed in a low-income foster family, they could be placed with the Kardashians, right? That kid qualifies. So it's not about the foster family's financial situation, it's about that child, right? But, what we, you know, what we learned through his mandatory physical and, and taking him for his WIC appointments that he came to us essentially failure to thrive, uh, which is a classification. It's a kind of a medical classification for the robustness of the health of an infant. Right? Um, and so, uh, basically, without special measures, I'm not talking like normal, ordinary. Care like every infant cannot survive on its own, right? Uh, but some infants need above and beyond kind of next level type care uh, where they will develop correctly, right? Cognitively, emotionally, physically, uh, maybe in all of those categories. Right? Um, because so he came to us that way, failure to thrive, uh, just because he wasn't receiving the level of, of care. Uh, so. I've lost track of the original question, which is where did we get him, <laughs> right? Uh, so yeah, he came to us through Polk County Children's Division, and it was kind of like one of those, once you kind of, in the system, right, you start building like these relationships within the system, and, and sometimes there's this like overlap uh, between different parts of your life, you know, it's like this like foster care part of your life, you're like, I'm a foster parent, so I know some people that are in the system, but I'm also like, pastor, right, uh, and a community member, and and now I know some of, some people from these other parts of my life that overlap into this part of my life, 
um, well, I guess a foster parent, and that's kind of how we got Owen, who's our, our youngest son. Um, so I had as a former student, uh, college student who was in our college ministry, who actually uh, was not only in our college ministry, but served overseas with me, short-term mission trip, in India who was working as a caseworker for the children's division. And so we kind of kept in touch, you know, she was here in town. And she knew that we had a young son, uh, an infant son, Isaac, our next oldest. Uh, and so when, when uh, Owen came into care, uh, she was like, wait, I know a family who is a foster family who lives here in town, who has a son that's a, just a few months older, which means, here's what that means, they already have stuff. Right, <laughs> she's thinking like critically, analytically, like who's got infant boy gear, and might be inclined to uh, say yes. Um, and so uh, she reached out to Owen's caseworker and said, "You need to call this family uh, because I, I think uh, because they already have some gear because they haven't had a placement in a few months. Few, da, 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 da. They can see all that." then maybe they would be inclined to say yes. So that's what happened. Um, and for us, you know, on, on our side, uh, it's kind of both, uh, there's some like logistical considerations, like I already talked about, age and kind of situation and that. And then with Owen, there's also um, yeah, some, uh, I don't know, some more, uh, soft kind of uh, or emotional or mystical <laughs> uh, kind of considerations in that um, maybe it's just a part of you know my, my uh, I have some underlying compulsions about completeness and, and whatnot like I can't not finish a movie series or a book series even if I know like they're just getting progressively worse <laughs> I've got to finish them like, not like clinical compulsion but just a little just a little idiosyncrasy running through me uh, but our kids, uh, Ansley, Elias, Isaac, right, picking up on the pattern, mm -hmm. right, A, E, I. And so the caseworker calls and says, hey, we have this, this kid, his name's Odin. Uh, so that was his, his birth name, uh, Odin. Uh, do you want him? And so I was like, I'm going to talk to my wife. And da, 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 da. I said, you know, hey, babe, um, we're being asked to take this placement. Here's all the facts. And by the way, his name is Odin. Right? She's like, shut up. And I was like, I'm, I'm not making it up. I'm clearly not lying to you. You're not going to bring a baby here and be like, oh, his name's George. And, uh, so I was like, oh, that might have been like the, just a little bit, you know, like push you over the edge to say yes. Like, well, maybe this could go somewhere. Um, and it didn't. Clearly, we changed his name, uh, but uh, yeah. So he came from Polk County. That's a really long answer to a short question, but I feel like there's so many like kind of early details to how that stuff happens, and then at the same time, just some like really human level the things that happen. It was just real conversations between you know real people about you know is this. Is this the right thing? Is it the right time? Um, are we, you know, prepared to kind of enter back into the system in a really, real, tangible way? Uh, in all honesty, like our first, 
placement. It was exhausting. Uh, just physically, uh, emotionally, relationally, just draining. Uh, we had our, our foster daughter, and we, and we love her. And she's, she's back from the birth dad, and that's a good thing. Like, all, everything turned out great uh, for her, but the process of getting to that point was just, it was a lot. Uh, and so it was kind of like, uh, you know, you, you have kind of all this anticipation built up about how great this is going to be, and you're going to do this good thing, and, and yada yada, and then it's like goes off the rails. And you're like, it's still very good, but man, no one could have imagined in a million years how hard this is. Foster daughter came to us. She was in a half body cast as a two year old, and so now there's there's medical stuff. Um, her bio mom was a, a handful, a couple handfuls, uh, and uh, had a lot of you know, issues going on there. Uh, we're just in meetings all the time. Her case was in Greene County, which means all of her stuff was in Greene County, which means that. Every time we had to go for a meeting or a visit or anything, we had to go to Springfield. Right, so there were times during uh, her case where I was going to Springfield after work three, four days a week. You know, um, you know so all of that just kind of takes a toll. You know, you know, we did that for nine months while Laura was pregnant uh, with Isaac. <laughs> uh, so uh, I get to be a bit just like. But so yeah, there's some, you know, there's some systematic things that go on in there. There's some human level things that go on in there, and, and all the way out, um, you know, it's kind of juxtaposed against that, um, that idea that um, all of this is just coming from some brokenness. Uh, and at the same time, like the flip side of that is, uh, I should think about like that question about like what does it mean to be American. Or and part of that is, man, we live in a, in a country that uh, does not do these things perfectly, <laughs> right? The system is, is broken in tons of different ways. Um, but it's at least creating pathways and provisions to try to do something about that. Uh, and at the same time, I recognize that the system never works without people right? stepping into it and saying, okay, I'll be a part of that. I'll do that, um, uh, and it's you know it's brokenness at the beginning, and it's brokenness <laughs> kind of throughout the way, um, but at the same time, like you know, real people, you know, and for whatever sense of conviction that drives that, you know, so whether that's a, a social conviction, a faith conviction, sometimes you know, obviously those things can intersect; they don't necessarily have to. Um, a lot of times, you you know, uh, through the media, and whatnot, we kind of get like. Oh well, foster parents just do it for the money, right? And there are some people that I suppose do that. Although I don't think that people that do that understand a lot about money, um, because it's a losing, <laughs> it's, it's a losing deal. Uh, you'll never make anywhere close to what you spend <laughs> uh, in raising a child if you, you know, come in even with one percent of any kind of altruistic motive. It just doesn't, and in Missouri especially, I don't know about other states, you know, what they pay. I just know that Missouri and Kansas toggle back and forth between being 49th and 50th 
uh, in uh, foster parent stipend, right? And so uh, we're just kind of fighting to maintain not the bottom, right? So when, when Kansas leapfrogs us to position 49, then we raise our foster parent pay just a little bit more so that we don't be pegged as being the lowest. Uh, but it's, it's not good.
you're going to find that blue states tend to have higher foster parent pay rates and red states have, tend to have on the lower end. Uh, and again, I think that that probably correlates to tax right, and incomes. Yeah. So uh, I was more so talking about the actual rate of adoption. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so one interesting thing that I have learned uh, just in the, in the last week, uh, and this is really great news uh, coming out of the state of Texas, uh, is that there are more kids who are being adopted out of foster care than are coming into foster care uh, presently, right? which is a massive paradigm shift. Uh, and I, I, can't, I can't speak to whether or not that is true in any other state. I can tell you it's not true in Missouri. And, uh, but uh, I'm interested to do some more research and figure out what's going on in Texas that is driving that. Um, so I just read some short abstracts that, that kind of speak to just the general numbers. Uh, but that's a very encouraging uh, thing, something uh, I think that uh, we should all hope for, right? And, um, and I think it's, it's something that you know, if we want to talk about, you know, you know, idealistic visions, you know, for a people or a country, uh, a lot of times we'll, you'll see this language uh, in social media, kind of gets couched this way, uh, I think in a just society, right, that that would be true, right, that that would be thoroughgoing, right, that more kids get adopted out of foster care than coming into foster care. It's a, and obviously that can only be true for so long. <laughs> it's a business where you want diminishing returns. Absolutely, yeah. Also, I, I would just say, um, I think I can uh, recommend this because it's a state-funded program. Uh, <laughs> I, I would recommend uh, at, at the appropriate time in your life, right, when you're thinking about family planning and family development and all those sorts of things that you give foster care uh, consideration. It's, it's tough, um, but it's absolutely worth it uh, to, um, to give to another person, to another family, uh, to your society, to your culture and community, uh, a, a gift of loving a child. Uh, and the statistics are um, dramatically in favor of the benefits of foster care and adoption um, in terms of um, you know, children that, get, that, that age out of the system, right? Don't get adopted and will age out. Uh, are exponentially more likely uh, to uh, cost their communities far more, uh, both in, in terms of uh, social welfare programs, uh, incarceration rates. Walker High School, I apologize for the interruption. We meant to do this at the beginning of lip time, but we missed it. <laughs> um, students, please remember to vote for the court warning court if you have not already done so. The voting for the court warming court will end at 1.30 today, so make sure you cast your vote for the court warming court. Seniors in particular, seniors, view the latest email because it does include ballot changes. So seniors, do not forget to view the latest email because it does include ballot changes. Thank you. Cool. See, that's the man changing the ballot on the last day of voting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, 
so I mean, you think about it in, in lots of different categories, um, right? So if you think of it in terms of economics, and uh, there's a huge uh, windfall, right, to a community if their um, adoption rates are high uh, through foster care. Uh, you think about it in terms of justice, right? Um, that it is, it is the, one of the most just things children, um, right, and, and not so much uh, in our community, um, but that also becomes a racial justice issue uh, in urban areas, right? Uh, you think about it in terms of uh, just the benefit uh, to your family, right, the transformative effect uh, that you have on a family to, um, to adopt, right, and to adopt through foster care. It's, I think it's had a massively important benefit to our kids, right? just helping them to develop a sense of, of kindness and compassion uh, for others, because right? we get to live in that relationship every day. Um, so I, I would, again, uh, encourage you, and um, there are a lot of, uh, people have a lot of hurdles kind of like, What about a lot of questions and concerns about fostering? And it's not that those aren't legitimate; they are. Um, but I, I think what what slows people down uh, is they don't act, they raise all the questions, but never take the time to hear any answers right? uh, as to why those hurdles can be overcome or why they should be set aside. So, yeah, good. Um, so this topic is like especially one of interest to me because I felt the transformative effects of adoption. I have three adopted siblings. Um, so um, I'm somewhat familiar with the process, but they were all adopted internationally, so I'm not as familiar with um, how it works domestically. Uh, you talked about the foster care system being broken in a lot of different ways. Um, are there some more specific ways that you've noticed um, that the system doesn't work in the way that it should? And um, I know there, there's a chance you haven't necessarily thought this far, and I can acknowledge that, but um, what would you do to potentially try to fix them or alleviate them if you were in a position to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the greatest tension, right, um, and inflection of brokenness into the foster care system comes with the people, right? Because uh, we're all carrying stuff into it, and, and the system can only account for so many things uh, at one time. So the greatest tension exists uh, in, in circles around the question or around the idea of doing what's best for the child, right? So everyone that that wants to, to be a part of the system should, right, in an ideal sense, um, want that, right? What is best for this particular child? Um, but the problem is, is that it's, you bring more competing interests, right, into that conversation more complicated that decision becomes, right? What is in the best interest of the child? So um, the state uh, has a, you know, a parent first, reunification first policy, if you will, uh, or bent. Uh, and on, on many levels, that's very good, right? So as a parent of natural born children, I want the state to be like, hey, we if we're going to put our thumb on the scale and, and Really, kind of 
lean a certain way initially, we want to lean toward biological parents. Uh, so if someone hotlined my family for whatever reason and, uh, and children's division came in and took my kids, and I would want the state in my corner saying, okay, you get a chance, <laughs> right? And maybe multiple chances uh, to rectify this situation. Uh, and at the same time, that same policy right, um, can be manipulated to drag to drag these processes out far longer than they actually should, right? So we got our son uh, in place with us uh, at three months, and we finalized his adoption a week before his third birthday. Right? Now, during that time, uh, he had no visits with his biological parents because they wouldn't work their plan. So what happens if you're biological parent as a kid that comes into the system then you get a reunification plan it's basically a you know jump through these hoops do these things check these boxes and we start working toward reunifying you with your, with your kid or your children uh, but they never even began their plan right? so there's at in Missouri uh, after six months of no meaningful contact or investment right between a parent and child that child is considered to be legally abandoned. Right? So um, no contact means, no visits, no letters. The parent doesn't you know, buy them diapers or clothes or you know, just no meaningful contact. Um, so when you look at like a, a case like ours, right, there's no reason that this should take two and a half years. Um, and it's because of the reason why it does take that long is because of all of the uh, the hoops, right, and all of the checkboxes and the predisposition of the of the state. And of course, that filters down to real judges in real time, uh, making real choices. And again, so you want to hold those things in tension and say, and you want that, you want that, right, that kind of predisposition toward reunification, right, and even as a as a foster parent. You have to go into that. If you want what's best for the child, then that has to be a part of your paradigm, right? To say, man, if this person can get clean, if they can get healthy, if they can get stable, you know, whatever things they need to do on their end, then I should want for this child to go back to their biological family. Uh, and at the same time, I think there kind of comes a point, and it's really hard to describe and define, where it just kind of becomes pretty clear, but that's not going and it's not in that child's best interest. Right? Uh, and, it would, and, and, and at that point, though, I think the system should move faster. Right? That's a really truncated view. Now, in terms of how to make that happen, I, mean, I, I, I don't have a clue. Uh, part of it, you feel like, uh, when you're in the system, you feel like a part of it is, man, if just people just make common sense kind of choices, uh, or if there were less paperwork, or if there were less people involved, there are a massive amount of people involved in an adoption through foster care, um, or just a foster care case, right? So you have the child, right? Um, you have uh, their parent or parents, a biological family. Uh, you have uh, the children's division caseworker. You have the guardian ad litem, which is the child's lawyer, right? Uh, in many cases, the bio parents will have a lawyer, 
you know, the juvenile officer, right, uh, who uh, works for the police department, right? Then you have the judge, then you have foster parents, um, and you might have, depending on the nuance or the complications of the case, you could have the children's division supervisor. Um, so now we're talking at least nine parties, right? And then if it's moving toward adoption, then the foster parents need a lawyer. So now we're up to 10 parties involved, uh, all trying to make decisions for this one person. Uh, or maybe, you know, it could be a sibling set, it could be multiple people. Um, in which case, the guardian ad litem is the lawyer for all of those children, right? Um, now, okay, when was the last time you got in a, in a circle of 10 people to try to make a life-changing decision and you quickly came to an agreement? Yeah, it just hardly ever happens, right? Uh, so uh, I don't know, but at the same time, like all those parties probably need to be there, right? Um, you know, it's hard to fathom that a six-month-old old child needs a lawyer, right? But that lawyer is supposed to be tasked with being the voice for that child, right? Um, you know, so it's hard to say. Uh, at the same time, man, I know of other foster cases, and man, ours was, um, you know, it took way too long, and part of that was, you know, we could put the responsibility at the feet of some people along the way uh, who kind of dropped the ball, and at the same time, you're like, I know why you dropped the ball, so in the state of Missouri, uh, anyone who is a member of the Missouri Bar can be assigned cases. So if you if you uh, if you Google back on this, there was a uh, there was a there was a court that tried to assign uh, who was the, the last governor, not Grimes, but the, the guy before him, uh, Nixon. Nixon. Who tried to assign Nixon uh, a public defense case while he was the governor uh, because he was still he maintained his membership in the Missouri Bar. Uh, and he did that as a means of demonstrating, but we don't have enough public defenders. Public defense backlog is huge, yeah. uh, and the and the children's division court cases uh, and juvenile cases are the same way. Right? So if you want to be a children's division worker and social worker, I mean everybody in that office is, has a, a mountain of work, uh, way more than they can possibly do mm -hmm. uh, in in the right time periods. But uh, one of the lawyers. That got that was a part of our case for a season. Essentially, got assigned that case. Well, she has a, a private uh, practice, right? So you think our public uh, adoption case is going at the top of her to do file or at the bottom of her to do file? At the bottom. So we went to court uh, for termination of parental rights um, and got delayed because that lawyer forgot to serve the papers to the file time. Right. So that pushed us back uh, almost nine months because of all the delays. It's, it's like one domino that pushes over a bunch of other dominoes uh, that push our adoption back like nine months. Right. Um, and that's just like, that's a paperwork issue. Right. Uh, 
So the answer is less people and less paperwork, and at the same time, it's like, well, who do you go with? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of this stuff, bureaucracy as yeah, well. Yeah, bureaucracy is necessary. And at the same time, so that's necessary to create the, the appropriate checks and balances to make sure that the government isn't, you know, playing fast and loose with people's lives. Yeah, right, or riding roughshod over biological parents' rights. So that's the cost, right? That's like the real human cost of living in a free society, right? Is that there's there's all this good that comes from it, right? with all these rights and, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, there's all this like human expense, that's like almost collateral damage. So it's one of those weird ways of I think of thinking about it because we're like, you know, we live in Southwest Missouri, man. We're all you know star-spangled awesome down here, right? Uh, and and at the same time, you're like that comes at a very high price uh, in, in ways that we don't necessarily always account for. Right? So because uh, my son has biological rights, and the government it has to be interested in protecting those rights, that it put his future not only on hold, but potentially in jeopardy. And not to mention his other siblings. So we were like he's really fortunate in the sense that, and this is a, this is going to be an ironic statement. Right? He's fortunate because he was born with drugs in the system, right? which meant that the state had to mandate it take him at birth from the hospital directly into care. His siblings, right? He has an Irish twin uh, sister, which means a, a that's a uh, a sibling that is born less than one year apart. Irish twin sister, uh, and then two other older brothers right, who could not come into care, uh, even though everybody knows, right? The guardian at Lyman knows, the judge knows, the juvenile officer knows, because our son is born with drugs and says everybody knows that his parents do drugs. Right? But because the like the threshold requirements of what it takes to take a kid into care, which is a good thing and simultaneously. Uh, meant that his, Owen's parents had to be essentially seen or discovered with drug paraphernalia out and in front of the children before they could be, could be busted, before they could be taken into care. So whereas it's fortunate in that sense that my son was born with that, the same system that helps him and your sisters.